Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My goal here is to find the exceptional individuals in their fields, interview them and ask them good questions so they they hopefully even say that that's a good question and then pass that knowledge on to listeners. So my uh, guest today is Curtis Suttle. He's a professor at the Institute for Oceans and Fisheries, the Department of Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, how viruses uh, work in the oceans and what their their goal is and, uh, you know, all the, the things that go on with them. So, Curtis, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Uh, doing very well, thanks. Nice to meet you. Yeah. So how did you get interested in, uh, in viruses and the environment? Well, I guess it depends how far back you want to go. I mean, uh, if we go way back, I was, as a child, even sail around a sailboat. Oh, wow. When I was, I think I was 12 years old, and we were sailing up a research vessel anchored there. It had set up, and they were seeing all of the life, being saltwater crocodiles. Ah, as I went through and, and went to what I was really, really interested, what regulates population, it's quite striking. So what we see in a, in a few milliliters of seawater for hundreds of the questions, how do all these exist? Well, there was a that. And, and so uh, for my PhD work, I'm very interested in, in what regulates these populations and looking at, at a variety of factors. Um, and my PhD work was actually done here at the University of British Columbia. And then I went off and uh, did uh, postdoctoral work at um, Stony Brook University in the United States uh, with a fellow called Jed Furman. And uh, he worked on bacteria in the ocean. And I was working on these small single-celled uh, plants, which we call phytoplankton, which is the basis of the food web in the ocean. But at about that time, um, we're going back a while now, we're going back into the late 80s, was uh, this sudden realization that, in fact, that bacteria were really what's most important in the oceans. And just to put that into perspective, most people don't think about it, but if you were to take all the living material in the ocean and could weigh it, and on one side of that balance, you put everything that you're most familiar with, uh, anything you could see, basically, whether it be fish or seaweed or limpets or whales or put everything on one side of the balance and then the other side of the balance you put everything you couldn't see because it was microscopic it turns out that about uh, probably more than 95 percent of the living material in the oceans by weight is microscopic and to put that into perspective those microbes produce about half the oxygen of the planet uh, and they also they also turn over very fast they also grow very very quickly and so I was interested in taking some of my ideas from my PhD and this postdoctoral work, trying to understand uh, what was regulating uh, these microbial populations in the ocean. And at that time, I was working with actually the, the important role that nutrients. And while I was in that lab, uh, there was a graduate student named Lita Proctor, who was working with Jed Furman as a postdoc. In it. And um, what she had found as she was looking under the microscope, she found all of these viruses. I mean, just amazing amounts of viruses. And prior to that, um, people had kind of talked about why there weren't any viruses uh, and why you wouldn't expect to find them. And so um, 
when I left uh, Stony Brook University and took a faculty position at the University of Texas at that time, I decided, well, this sounds like probably the most important thing that regulates populations in the ocean. There are probably viruses being obligate. Um, so we did some experiments looking at whether viruses might infect phytoplankton. Uh, Lita Proctor's work and Jed's work was focused on bacteria, uh, the heterotrophic, things that use organic carbon. And I was interested in things that do photosynthesis. So, and the first experiment that we did was very successful and showed that viruses actually were important factors in uh, killing phytoplankton in the ocean. And so this was a uh, this is how we actually got started in it. So my background is actually ecology and uh, great, popul great. population ecology. Well, a couple of questions here. You said uh, in the beginning you grew up on a sailboat. You sailed around the world. What was that like? Uh, before we get more back into the science, you know, what was it like to live that life? What did you guys do every day? And did you, you know, go on land all yeah. the time? Were you stay in the boat? What was that like? Yeah, I mean, it was it was actually quite incredible. We were the the first Canadian family actually to sail around the world and on a sailboat, and it was four years. And I left when I was nine years old and came back when I was fourteen. It was just my mother, my stepfather, and myself. Stepfather built the boat. It's not like we were wealthy. And if you go back at that time, it's pretty hard to imagine. We didn't have any refrigeration, we electricity. Um, there was no digital watches or clocks. We actually navigated the same way that Christopher Columbus did, uh, using a sextant and shooting the stars and a gimbaled clock. We tried to, no radio. Uh, and then even at nine years old, I had uh, eight hours of watches I had to keep a day, you know, two four-hour blocks, three of us. From nine years old, I was steering and sailing this boat uh, essentially by myself. It helped my parents. We did it, but they had to. It was an uh, amazing experience and certainly shaped, the, <laughs> shaped my life. Yeah, that's amazing. You, uh, I mean, what was it like at various points around the world? It seems like Sadly, today, I don't even know if you'd be allowed to do it, or maybe international law would leave you alone, but, but what did you guys do when you'd, uh, I mean, how often were you near land versus just out in the ocean? Yeah, I mean, it really is quite remarkable, again, to, to throw you back in, in time when we did that. Uh, there was places that we sailed into that declared national holidays because we sailed into port, right? And there was places that, the, that we were the first kind of sailboat yacht, that it, we'll call it a yacht, it was only 36 feet long, but um, that we went into. So we were the first sailboats, for example, to day sail the Brazilian coast. So uh, we would go into a little different port every day and all the, the villages would come out and take a look at us because so we were very much an anomaly. And so, uh, and there were so few people doing it at that time that uh, you actually knew all the other boats in the world that were sailing in the world and where they were, the mouth, what, what little island they were in. So um yeah no it was it was quite a remarkable way to grow up of course we had big storms and there was you know um and my stepfather again would stop for periods of time to work because uh again we we my parents sold our house in order to be able to finance the voyage and my stepdad built the boat but so we stopped in hawaii for six months for example where it, uh, and then also we stayed for one year in south africa uh where he also worked to wow. build up some savings you weren't afraid of pirates or anything? Were they prevalent back then? Yes, they were. I mean, we were at, at certain parts of the world and, and areas that are still quite quite troublesome, but but maybe not as uh, much as they were then. So, for example, the you know the really scariest parts were off the northern coast of Australia by Timor at that time, which is now all part of Indonesia. That was uh, a lot of 
we heard lots of stories of people that had been overrun and, and killed. And again, when you're in a sailboat that has a small auxiliary motor that can do only about 10 miles an hour full out, uh, you know, you are worried about those sorts of things. And, and off the coast of uh, northern coast of South America, again, was an area that we had some trouble and it was quite scary. So, yeah. So uh, not not what you would consider sort of a typical upbringing. And I don't think any of my parents had even graduated from high school. So uh, so the fact that I would go off and chase an academic career was certainly it was in the cards for them. Yeah. Have you um, ever repeated at least parts of the journey with a modern craft recently? No, not at all. I mean, as an oceanographer, we, you know, we go out on ships sometimes. Um, and uh, But uh, no, I've never, uh, again, when you, when you start to chase an academic life, even if you kind of wanted to do those sorts of things, you... Uh, you just don't have that kind of time. I did a lot of sailing for a while, like mostly dinghy sailing, and I do racing, race small boats and race uh, bigger yachts as well. But uh, again, not uh, not transoceanic racing. Were there, last question about this this aspect of your life, but were there any parts, I mean, you couldn't go everywhere, but I'm sure there were big stretches of ocean that you didn't go through. And are there parts of the world that really no one goes through or sails through? Even now? Um, I, I really don't know. I mean, actually, I think pretty people go pretty much everywhere now in, in the most extreme places. And even back then, there was these folks that, that, you know, people would talk about just the kind of crazy people that would go down to Antarctica. And, you know, there's there was books written about, you know, three times around the horn. And, you know, there, there was always people that kind of uh, pushed the limits in terms of where they went to. Um, and uh, it, it was an unusual time because... Again, not many people were doing that, and so people would show up in Ireland. They hadn't people like you know coming like this before, but there was certainly there's a pattern that people tend to follow because of the wind. So uh, the prevailing winds. So I'm sure most people have heard of the trade winds, for example. And so most of the sailboats they'll always go from east to west um, because that's the prevailing wind. So it's kind of the same directions that the sailing ships used to follow in the old days. Okay, I got it. Well then, so fast forwarding, uh, you were talking about how you're interested in bacteria and then viruses based on the, you know, what had been discovered. So what, uh, just uh, as a quick summary, and we'll go into more detail, what is the dynamic overall in the oceans? Uh, what, what are viruses doing? What are bacteria doing? I guess they're nutrient cycling. Like, what, what do you see? Yeah, so this is the thing that's kind of remarkable and, and kind of represents, I guess, a paradigm shift in the way we looked at things. because. Um, as I mentioned, that the oceans are responsible for about half the oxygen production on the earth, just to give one example. And yet um, the lifespan of the organisms that are doing all of this heavy lifting for the planet, photosynthesis, is only about uh, maybe about eight days or four days. You know, it's kind of that kind of range. And it turns out that now we know that viruses are responsible for killing about 20% of the living material by weight in the ocean every day. So the wheels in the ocean spin incredibly fast. And, and so there's all kinds of implications of that. And because things, um, the cycles are so quick and the implications are so large when you think of things like the balance of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere versus the ocean, and it's ultimately the microbes that are driving much of this, right? Because they're the photosynthetic organisms that are, are using, uh, using up the CO2, for example, using oxygen. And then the other thing that's really interesting, again, if you think about regulating population, 
Um, viruses tend to be incredibly specific, right? So we've got this uh, terrible situation with the new coronavirus, which is circulating around right now, and um, which has obviously jumped from an organism into the human population. Um, uh, and viruses do that, but it's rare. And so mostly the viruses that infect an organism infect only that organism and often only even a strain of that. And so viruses have this really important role that uh, of maintaining this balance of different species, because when a species becomes too abundant, then viruses are able to propagate quite effectively through that species, and it tends to knock down that population. And so there's some phytoplankton, for example, that form these massive blooms that you can see from space, and then all of a sudden they're gone. And that was, again, one of the uh, things that drove me to thinking about viruses, because uh, there was all this anecdotal literature that was out there. People talked about giant blooms of phytoplankton disappearing overnight. There was reports in the literature of people looking at phytoplankton under electron microscopy and seeing virus particles. And so there was... Oh, uh, so you, you think that uh, a bloom happens, it's a huge concentration of a certain plankton, and then viruses have a field day and just attack it all? Exactly. And so we know that some of the biggest blooms of phytoplankton in the ocean now are actually regulated by viral infection. So it turns out that they are, um, yeah, that's exactly what they're doing. And, and it's complex because, again, what viruses see as a, um, as a species or a taxon is not necessarily the same thing that we perceive because, again, viruses have to be able to infect a host, we have to be able to get in. And so, again, going back to the, the coronavirus that's causing COVID, you know, it had to have a very specific uh, receptor molecule that allows it to get into human cells. If it didn't have that, it wouldn't be able to get in. And so, so um, yeah, so you see these, when populations get really abundant, there's probably only a very limited number of viruses that infect that organism, and then they will take that population. Why over time <laughs> wouldn't you see, um, yeah, why over time wouldn't you see um, the plankton that are being attacked uh, evolve defenses against the virus and get to a state where the virus doesn't, uh, you know, cause such huge turnover in the organism. Well, in fact, this is happening all the time. It's, it's a continuous, uh, well, we could think about it as a war, but uh, uh, there's something in the uh, Alice in Wonderland, which we have an ecology called the Red Queen, which is, um, you know, I have to run as fast as I can just to stay in the same place. And uh, that's what happens in biology. And so you find that these viruses essentially chase the hosts that they infect and the hosts are continually adapting uh, different mechanisms to kind of fight off the viruses. But we, we have to also understand that there's many, many different types of viruses and they're all doing different things. So if we look again at humans, there's probably at least a hundred different virus diseases in humans, which are caused by different viruses. And so just because you manage to get away from one doesn't mean there isn't another one and, and, and whatever um, adaptation that you may have acquired, which allowed you to escape infection from one virus, may make you susceptible to infection by another virus. And there's actually a number of examples of that. So for example, if um, say a virus will often recognize a highly conserved protein because um, over evolution, that's very hard for the organism to mutate, you know, uh, because it's absolutely dependent on it. And so there's examples of of proteins that have specific mutations, which um, means the virus can't infect it anymore, but then that protein doesn't do its job as well. 
And so there's a disadvantage to that mutation because the protein, say, doesn't transport a specific nutrient as quickly as it could otherwise. And so when the virus pressure is gone, you know, all of a sudden the virus can't infect anymore, it's diminished, the, the risk of viral infection goes very, very low, then there's an evolutionary pressure to mutate back to the original form again because that's the one that's defective. Right? And so you have these kind of flip-flops back and forth and it's very, very complicated. Almost anything you can think of, uh, viruses and hosts have kind of figured out a way to, to interact with each other. And some of them are amazing. I mean, if we look at our own genome, about 8% of our own genome, the human genome, is actually made up of viruses. Which have I've gotten, heard that many times, yeah. Yeah, so where they get amazing. locked into our own DNA and they can't get out. When, uh, what are some of the uh, dynamics of viruses attacking plankton? I mean... Are there ones that attack only when plankton are in a bloom state or in a biofilm state and others that attack when they're, when they're solo? Any observation there? Yeah. So, so again, typically they kind of go back to, to what a virus is. And I think I'm just going to kind of roll back here a little bit because it's kind of fun to think about it. And I, and I don't think about these things very often either. And I, I was giving a talk one time to a, a general audience of potential donors for an institute for a dinner after dinner talk. I was trying to, uh, to figure out, well, how do I communicate what a virus is and the size of them? And I hadn't really thought about it before, but, but they're incredibly small. So for example, if you take a, a virus and you scaled it to the size of the head of a pin, for example, so you could see it, and I was scaled by the same amount, I would be 150 kilometers tall, right? So they're tiny. And yet they're so abundant that in, say, in every milliliter of seawater, on average, there's about 10 million virus particles. So every time you go swimming, you swallow about as many viruses as there are people in North America, just from the amount of water that you take in your mouth, right? And yet if you were to take the viruses in the ocean and stretch them end to end, they're so abundant that they would go 10 to the seventh light years or further than the nearest 60 gallons. So, so there's, they're there in this incredibly high concentration. Uh, in seawater, they have very short lifespans overall, so they turn over very, very quickly, and they're very, very host-specific. So to come back to your your question about are there some which only infect solo organisms? Well, the way a virus makes a living typically uh, is it you know it has to find that specific host, and because their lifespan isn't very long, when cells are in in low abundance, then in fact um, the probability of actually infecting them is very, is very small. So some viruses have actually got around that problem because they just, when they find a host cell, uh, they just integrate into the DNA of that host and they just kind of hang up, right? Or they integrate in with the cell uh, in some sort of way, maybe as a, an extra piece of DNA. So every time the host replicates, the virus replicates with the cell until times are great. And then when times are great and that cell starts to grow really fast and becomes abundant, then the virus goes into this lifestyle where it kills the host and produces many, many viruses. And you can think over evolutionary time why that would work. And it works because if an organism is growing really, really fast, then probably there's other organisms out there just like it that this virus is going to be able to find. But when things are not going very well, then it's probably the chance of finding a new host are relatively small. So why don't I just hang out inside this host cell that can look after me? So it can repair my DNA. I can just replicate alongside with it, things like that. So there's many, many, there's these different sorts of lifestyles that viruses ad- adapt and not every virus can do everything. So there's, there's many so different some, uh, 
some viruses can get inside a, uh, you know, let's say a plankton or a cell and sit there and wait till the cell fattens up and then eat it, you know, or then slaughter it essentially, like like fattening up a pig. But instead of from the outside, you're on the inside and you yeah. know, they'll be uh, commensal and then they'll all of a sudden lice the, uh, the cell when they're ready. Right. And, and because these are single celled organisms in the ocean for, for, you know, the phytoplankton and the bacteria plankton that are out there, um, they, when the cell is growing slowly, it just, every time the cell divides, the virus probably divides as well, has another copy, it goes along the host. And you can imagine that particular host cell is very resource limited. It doesn't have enough nutrients and things like that. And, and in a way, the virus is reading that. And so it, it, recognizes that it maybe not even have enough resources to produce, you know, a bunch of virus cells to be released. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's an interesting dynamic and that's not every virus, only some viruses. Um, yeah. There's this huge diversity. So viruses again are, uh, they are able to encode their genetic information using, you know, single stranded RNA, double stranded RNA, single stranded DNA, double stranded DNA, all of these different ways of, of, uh, making a living, whereas all cellular life um, just uses double-stranded DNA. So again, all of these viruses have different different lifestyles and, and how they interact with the host organism. So you could theoretically have a virus or viruses that live inside a phytoplankton. And then, for instance, when they bloom, certain genes are activated or certain signals are created inside the cells that say to the virus, all right, it's time. And then maybe they, they wipe out the population. Exactly. Exactly. You're right. Exactly. So, so they're increasing their, they're still growing in a sense, because every time those cells divide, um, they're producing more viruses inside the cell, but not very many. And then when the population becomes very large, uh, potentially those viruses could um, release and, and cause lysis of that particular population. Um, but that's one life. And there's many, many of these things that we just don't know very much about, right? There's, these are become the ones which are integrated or become part of the, uh, as a host, especially if they're just a piece of DNA inside the host, as opposed to integrating into a genome, become much more difficult to study because it's a separate piece of nucleic acid. And so if you're doing sequencing or things like that, you always wonder, well, maybe it's just a contaminant because it's not actually integrated into the genome. So it's, um, these things are kind of difficult to study and understand how they're regulated. Uh, some are well understood, um, but many are not. So, which uh, which viruses are you studying in particular, and what what functions are you looking after? Oh wow! I mean, that's we're uh, we're so plastic in terms of what we do. You know, it's funny when we years and years ago when I put in my first grant proposal to the National Science Foundation, they essentially wrote back and said, "Well, we have nobody actually to review this because there's there's nobody that works with viruses." And ultimately, they sent it half to virologists and half to oceanographers, both of whom hated it. He said, virologists may study one virus. The oceanographers said, well, we're not really interested in viruses. We're interested in process. And um, uh, so, when, so over the years, we've studied so many different kinds of viruses. Uh, you know, I say a lot of the work that we do is viral discovery work. Which we don't know what we're going to find. And so that's why we've ended up discovering so many types of, of different viruses. Um, you know, and we've had funding, you know, in the past from NASA and the Canadian Space Agency, you know, how do you look for life if you don't know what you're looking for? Because again, you find these, these uh, different kinds of viruses of story. So, um, you know, a virus, again, is an obligate pathogen, which can only replicate 
by in finding a cell and infecting it. And yet, one thing that we came across a number of years ago was uh, this is a little, again, single-celled zooplankton. So something that would eat bacteria plankton and small phytoplankton, uh, just a, a little or, organism that has a flagellum on. And we found a, what's called a giant virus that infects it. And so, so these giant viruses have very, very large genome for a virus. So much, much, much. And, um, and so this was, you know, at that time, the largest uh, one of these viruses had ever been found that infected a marine organist. And, and we were having a lot of trouble growing it. In fact, we had isolated this, this virus many, many, many years ago. And I had so many students and postdoctors, postdoctoral associates working on it. And they all just gave up because it seemed to go really well for a while and then would kind of fall apart. And uh, it turns out what was happening is there was actually something called a virophage. So it was a small virus which parasitized the giant virus and actually killed the giant virus and ultimately saved the, um, saved the little zooplankton. And uh, this became, you know, in a way is another way of adaptive immunity. And so when we sequenced the little virus, we were really surprised to see that it, it didn't look like other viruses at all. It actually looked like transposable elements, which are found in other eukaryotic cells. And so um, the PhD student, Matthias Fischer, who did this work, is now at the Max Planck Institute in Germany. He took the system with him when he went there to continue working on it. And he's now discovered that these, these little, uh, what we call virophages, jump in and out of the genome of the host and actually give it immunity to infection and virus. Wait a minute, wait a minute. The virophage material was part of the DNA of the host? and was activated to fight a virus that was attacking the host. No, it's actually a little virus. It's actually its own virus, it ha and but it's absolutely dependent on the replication of the giant virus in order to reproduce itself. Um, mm. And uh, and that's it has these uh, the things which start the the replication of the giant virus. There's a certain sequence of DNA which the small virus recognizes, and it also causes its own replication. So as the giant virus replicates, so does the little virus. And then it actually ends up killing the replication of the giant virus. But what's so this, also... This happens inside of the phytoplankton cell? or Yeah, inside. In this case, it's not a phytoplankton, but it probably happens in phytoplankton cells as well. We just have an isolate. But yes, in, in this case, a single cell zooplankton. But... Uh, but now there's many of these things in the ocean. They're just really, really hard to work with because they have to replicate on a cell which is being infected by a virus. And so we know that there's lots of these little viruses in the ocean that have this lifestyle. Uh, but unless you have a host organism that's infected by a giant virus, <laughs> then you can't isolate the little virus. And, and then the little virus ultimately kills the giant virus. And so then it leads to its own demise as well because it it requires infection by the giant in order for itself to survive and but now matthias has found that at least in, in some cases these little viruses can also integrate into the um, of the protease the little microzooplankton and hang out there and replicate along with the the host cell as well so in case it ever becomes affected by a giant so it's just that um these patterns of viruses and what they do and how they interact and how they drive evolution and how they drive community structure and biogeochemical cycling. All of these things are very tightly entwined. Um, how do you think uh, viruses find their targets? They're virions and they're supposed to be inactive and they can't move on their own. And they're so small in such a vast expanse. How do they ever find their targets? 
Yeah, so uh, it's the random walk is in most cases. Um, that's what, what seems to drive most of these interactions. But there's also some other really interesting things that are going on. For example, there's one virus um, which infects a phytoplankton, which is a symbiont in a protist, a heterotrophic protist. So it's, a, it's an alga which only lives inside a uh, which would be a zooplankton, I guess, right? And so that's what this virus infects. And so in some cases, there's an example which is cool that the virus seems to produce uh, a giant coating of sugar on the outside. And that's probably to encourage this little zooplankton to eat it so it can infect the host cells, which are only found inside. So it's really, a, you know, there's, there's sort of almost anything that you can imagine evolutionists come with something that, that can kind of figure out what's some way of getting around the problem, right? And so, uh, you know, it's intriguing. Doesn't this, uh, doesn't this seem to say that viruses are alive, at least once they're inside of a cell, because of all the contingent things that they can do and that's the evaluation an, of information? That's an absolutely great question and, and one that uh, there's lots of discussion about. And so, um, so there's a way of thinking about this, in, in which I think is a really kind of um, uh, interesting perspective. Someone who's really been promoting this is a fellow called uh, Patrick Fortier, and uh, who's at Pasteur in France. And um, but but the idea is that the virus particle is just a dispersal phase, right? so it's not the active virus, right? And so the what I always tell my students is is you know you walk into a room of uh, and you don't look into the classroom and say I can't believe it there's twenty billion people in this. And that's because we don't count the sperm and we don't count the eggs of everybody that's sitting there, even though they contain all of the genetic information to be a human. So the phenotype we recognize as being a human is the person that's sitting in the chair. And the same way that we go to the ocean and we don't say, God, there's you know 20 billion fish out here because we don't count the fish eggs that are floating in the ocean. We don't call them fish, even though they have all the genetic information of fish. Or you could go on and on with the analogies with plant seeds and things like this, right? And so the thought is that the virus is just a dispersal phase, right? So that's the equivalent of the, maybe not sperm and egg, which are reproductive, but seeds, for example, from plants. So it's a dispersal phase. The actual phenotype of a, of a virus is actually the infected cell. That's the virus, because at that point, that cell's sole purpose is just to produce viruses, right? So the living virus is actually the infected cell. And the virus particles, which are so abundant and widely dispersed, are in fact just the dispersal phase. So I would say, are, yes, absolutely, viruses are alive. <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, do you study uh, viruses in microscopic, you know, fish, whales, dolphins, things like that? Does anyone do that? Yeah. So I don't think so, they would have very interesting uh, stuff there. You know? No, it's a it's a, a good question again because we just had a, some papers out on. Um, viral discovery in salmon. And, uh, and maybe not surprisingly, we've discovered all kinds of new viruses there. So working with colleagues of the Department of Fisheries and Oceans Canada, um, they had this uh, kind of unusual problem in, in that they have a high throughput technology, which essentially is able to rapidly screen a fish for all known pathogens of fish. And uh, essentially, they can do 96 different pathogens against fish. And uh, so in this case, when there were dead and dying fish, um, which had obviously obvious pathology, and they put them against their high throughput array, and they found no pathogens that um, were known, 
then they would hand over all the sequencing to, to us and see if we could find new viruses. In fact, um, so a postdoctoral associate was working with me, Gideon Mordecai, uh, went through all this material and found that all of these new viruses, which were absolutely not known in fish, uh, or at least certainly not known in salmon, and in some cases weren't really known in fish at all, right? And so uh, there's, yeah, so that would be one example of where we've looked at, at, at viruses in sort of macroscopic organisms. So uh, we've, yeah, so there's lots of kinds of areas of viral discovery. Basically, we know so little about the viruses uh, in the planet, you know, something called the virosphere, which is the virosphere is all those places on earth that viruses exist and are affected by viruses, which are essentially everywhere that, that cellular life is found. And even we had a paper a little while ago, two years ago now, looking at the viruses above the planetary boundary layer. And it turns out that even if you go up uh, 9,000 feet in the atmosphere, the vertical flux of viruses, you know, just falling out of the sky is uh, more than a billion per square meter per day. There's just massive really? amounts of viruses. What kind of viruses will be up in the atmosphere? Well, it's really interesting. They get swept up from the surface of the earth. And so we could actually see where the viruses came from the desert or from the ocean. So this was a collaboration with uh, Professor uh, Isabel Roche at the University of Granada in Spain. And, um, and she had these collectors on the top of the Sierra Nevada mountains, Spain. And so, um, so we had a conversation one day. So why don't we look and see if the viruses are in there, right? You're collecting all this material. And, and, uh, and so indeed, it, it turns out that, um, yeah, there's a massive number of viruses up there. And once they're that high in the atmosphere, um, they're not there's so the planetary boundary layer is essentially above the area where there's much friction in the earth so they're up in that part of the atmosphere where they're free to travel around the globe so so once they're up there they can get to north america they can get anywhere on earth it's right just by the currents you know the winds currents the atmospheric wind hmm. yeah so we can actually see where the viruses came from the ocean or where they came from sahara desert depending on just the wind pattern so viruses uh, i guess because they're so small anything could could carry them but so i guess the i don't know i guess there's this viral cycling throughout the entire globe because of the winds yeah and and the thing that kind of there are viruses circulating uh around the globe and and this was one of the things that drove us to look in this direction as we were doing some genomic studies on specific kinds of viruses and sequencing them um and what we found was the identical viruses in lakes in Germany, in meltwater ponds, in the Arctic ice shelf, in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, in catfish production ponds. So we said, you know, viruses are supposed to be host specific. So it's very unlikely that there's going to be the same virus in, or the same host organism growing in Lake Constance in Germany at, you know, uh, 2.5 kilometers deep in the Arctic Ocean in the Gulf of Mexico. And so the hypothesis was that these viruses must be being widely dispersed. And uh, so in fact, we sort of think about viruses as not being dispersal. So they can, uh, they're free to disperse very, very widely. Now, um, that if we think about uh, connotations such as viruses infect mammals and things like that, well, they tend to have pretty limited dispersal because they're highly specialized in terms of infection process that they need to infect them. So in most cases, those would not be dispersed widely, but there are some viruses that, that are pretty recalcitrant, potentially could be dispersed far, not coronavirus. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> um, when you observe uh, bacteria in the ocean, let's say, 
or, or other creatures, phytoplankton, et cetera. You know, I, I, we've talked a lot about viruses infecting them and endogenizing or just living with them and lysing them and et cetera. Is there any use of them from the other side? Do bacteria or other creatures seem to deliberately use viruses to their own ends or are they just preyed upon by them, defended, you know, they defend themselves and that's it. But do you, do you see any, I don't know. Yeah. Well, use them as nutrients. No, fantastic question. Fan, fantastic question about whether let's look the other side or what benefit do viruses have. And in fact, this is what I preach about most commonly is that viruses are mostly our friends, not our enemies. And uh, so, for example, if you look at the microzooplankton in the ocean, it turns out that if you look at the, the number of virus particles that they eat, uh, that is sufficient to provide all of their nitrogen, say, phosphorus requirements. They don't need any else, right? So, because viruses are incredibly rich in phosphorus proteins that are surrounding nucleic acids. So, they can, they can be a food source. There's also some really intriguing things because viruses become integrated into the DNA of the host. And there was one study years ago by a colleague, which I thought was just amazing. He was studying bacteria in this case, and he was looking at, at viruses and, and how fast they're, they're damaged by ultraviolet radiation. And so, and so he was doing that by exposing the viruses to ultraviolet radiation and letting them infect the host. And uh, this, this is a fellow called Tyler Cockjohn. And, um, and what, he, what he found was that when, uh, when UV radiated the host, of course, it, viruses are badly damaged um, because it damages DNA. And so, but what he found is he exposed the viruses to ultraviolet radiation. They were able to, and the ones that could still infect the host ended up expressing genes that caused the host to produce a dark brown. And so in this case, the virus was inside the host cell where it was somewhat protected because the host cell could repair the viral DNA, but it was also giving the host cell tools so that it could avoid, could avoid damage by the ultraviolet. This is an area that we know very, very little about, and that's viral mutants. So I think that probably most virus um, that we have a close association with actually help the organism in some sort of way. And, and there's some nice so studies. They're, they're, that, they're obligate symbionts then, not just pathogens. So they're mutualists. They help each other out. Yeah. So um, Forrest Rower at, at uh, San Diego State University, his group had a really nice study in which they argued that certain viruses that we inhale, for example, because we're completely surrounded by viruses, we're inhaling thousands of them all the time, will get into our lungs. And uh, actually their little heads get stuck in the mucus and they put their feet outwards. And so that means all the bacteria that we inhale, that that virus can infect, the virus infects it immediately and kills the bacteria. So in other ways, it's, a, it's our first line of defense against some bacterial pathogens. So that's a, a real hmm. cool story. And then we look at our own nucleic acid, our strong evolutionary relationship. And so for example, uh, viruses. So the placenta of mammals, for example, one of the major proteins involved in the formation of placenta of mammal protein that was donated by a virus, one of our ancestors hundreds of millions of years ago, right? A hundred million years ago or so, probably. And so we have this, if it weren't for those viruses, there would be no mammal. Same with our nervous system. Some of the major proteins in our nervous system. Huh. So, well, this is kind of a weird question, but you know how food can be fermented by bacteria, you know, and, and and pretty much everything we eat is worked on by bacteria. Is there any? Is there such a thing as like a viral fermentation where you know a, a food once while it's alive is lysed and you know, kind of chewed up or acted upon by viruses and then consumed by another creature? You know, can viruses like quote unquote ferment food and 
and change it so it's amenable for something to eat it when it was otherwise wasn't before? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, the viruses, uh, the more we learn about them, the more we realize that they're encoding all kinds of functional genes that do things that we don't really know why they have those. And um, mostly they're genes which at some point have been co-opted from organisms that they infect. And then they've been worked upon to be viral genes. And so, um, yeah, so in, there's no reason, for example, why a virus couldn't encode certain genes that would allow maybe an organism to, to either give it traits that it could carry out other biochemical functions or maybe damage it in certain ways. In other words, there's, you know, there's probably, if it increases the viral fitness somehow and is able to allow the virus to survive better, so in other words, by modifying a cell so it becomes infected by something um, and gives it a different lifestyle, then so be it, it probably, probably does. I mean, one really cool example, it's not exactly like that, but is cholera, right? So cholera is um, caused by a bacterium called Vibrio cholera, but almost all Vibrio cholera are non-pathogen to humans. In order to become pathogenic to humans, it has to be infected by two different viruses. And those two different viruses causes cholera to be a human pathogen. And then in that case, cholera can invade humans, cause huge amounts of diarrhea, which of course is very beneficial for the bacterium because it has lots and lots of substrate to grow on and is also super beneficial to the virus because it produces tons of viruses. So, um, so certainly viruses can, can moderate the hosts that they have. And I can think of other cases of pathogens in general, right? So not necessarily just viral pathogens where they modify the behavior of hosts. So for example, making a caterpillar more attractive to birds. So the birds will eat the caterpillar so the parasite can replicate inside the bird, right? So, um, so there's, there's sort of traditional things that, that parasites do everywhere. Yeah, it's just amazing. So what, um, are there any big concepts that you sense that you're getting close to understanding with your research? Yeah, yeah. We're what we're really one of the things that we're really kind of focused on now is is something that we call taxon specific mortality, right? So almost all the numbers that we have for looking at viral infection in the ocean, and we look at the microbes in there. So you can think about it. There's thousands of different microbes, right? And there's tens of thousands of different viruses infecting these thousands of different microbes. And so as an ecologist or as somebody that's a biogeochemist, you really want to be able to answer some of those questions you asked me about, well, what are the viruses infecting? What species are they infecting at what time? And so we've come up with some new tools, for example, to, to try and unravel that problem, to look at taxon specific lysis, where we can look at the 1,000, we can look at an unlimited different number of taxa and uh, look at what their mortality rates are as a result of lysis. So that's something I think that'll be, is really cool, because then we can start to, excuse me, so we can, so that's really cool if we can start looking at taxon specific lysis because that'll give us some sort of handle in terms of how viruses are regulating population. So that I think we're, we're making good progress there. Uh, some of these virus uh, pathogens of fish, I think they're going to be really important in their impact on, uh, on different organisms. And then I really would want to try and expand that into other areas where we can really start to understand the role of viruses in regulating natural populations. So we really know the only thing we know viruses for basically are things that are either really economically important, right? Or maybe hugely ecologically important, or maybe they infect, we know a little bit about things that infect charismatic, charismatic megafauna, right? So we know a bit about seal viruses and whale viruses 
people think they're cool and they're probably ones, but um, but most of the life in the sea, we have, have no idea what virus is. Well, very good. Well, Curtis, we're just about out of time. This has been a really cool call. What, what's the best way for people to learn more about uh, your research? Um, I guess what everybody does right now is just Google. <laughs> so so uh, we, we kind of we publish in a variety of different areas and a variety of different platforms. And, uh, but uh, yeah, if people are interested in learning more about viruses, and, and I think the, the main point that I really like to get across is that uh, even despite this horrible thing that's going on right now with the pandemic is, is we actually depend, our evolutionary existence depends on the fact that we're closely associated with virus, the health of the planet depends on the fact that viruses are doing a lot of the heavy lifting that uh, allows uh, nutrients to cycle, organisms to survive, populations to change. Because if there's no mortality, then there's no life, right? Because you have to be able to repurpose those nutrients and things like that. So I think um, if people start thinking about viruses the way we think about most things, that they're actually part of our, our evolutionary existence, then um, it, it helps to frame these things in a clearer way. Yeah, very true. Well, Curtis, thanks for coming. It's been, uh, like I said, a really great call. I appreciate it. Yeah, great to talk to you and, and, uh, and good luck with uh, putting this all together. Take care. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.